Our text for this morning is Malachi chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. And this is the word of God. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Will you pray with me? Father, again, we stop to say thank you for the mercy, for the grace, for the love about which we sang, for your might, and we thank you for your word. We thank you for people of God gathered to hear your word. We confess our inadequacy God, without you and without your spirit, we will hear and gain nothing. Only through the work of your Holy Spirit will we hear the voice of God, feel the conviction of God, and rightly follow you, our God. And that's what we ask you for. Help us learn, repent, grow, worship, love as you would have us to do. Lord, move among your people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. The scene has been played out in movie after movie and household after household. So picture it in your mind and ponder it with me. There's a teenage boy and he calls for his mom to come to his room. On the desk in the corner of the room sits a computer that the parents bought for the young man to do his schoolwork. On a shelf sits a TV, maybe a Nintendo Switch that the parents bought him for his birthday. On the bedside table sits the boy's iPhone, which he uses to keep in touch, of course, with his parents and his friends. And the boy himself sits on his bed in clothes that his parents bought for him. And when the mom makes it into the room, the boy asks a teenage question. It involves going to a party at a friend's house. You see, it seems that the parents aren't going to be there. But, but, the friend's older brother is going to be there. So everything ought to be fine. Can I please go? Everyone's going to be there. And the mom looks at her young man and she says, I'm sorry, but if there aren't going to be any parents there, you're not going to be there either. Too many things can happen when no one's around to keep an eye on things. In exasperation, the boy proclaims, you never let me do anything I want. You don't care about me at all. Now freeze the scene. How ridiculous are those comments? 
I know emotion rides high when we're disappointed with our circumstances. But do you think that the boy is right? Does his mother really not care for him at all? Or if he looked around him with the young men, the young men see a piece or two of evidence that would tell him that even if things are not going his way today, his parents do care about him. They even give him more than he deserves. The opening of the book of Malachi sets for us a scene that looks a lot like our imaginary teenager's room. The people of God are sitting in a land that God has provided for them to live in. Their needs are met. They even have a luxury or two that they do not deserve. Yet things are not going for the people of God exactly how they want. Instead of thanking God for all that he's done for them, the people of God complain about him, question his love for them, and they even refuse to serve him rightly. Malachi, a prophet who spoke to the people of God on God's behalf, ministered in the 5th century B.C. So think 433 or 425 B.C. This is a little book, 55 verses in four tiny chapters. But it exposes the hearts and the attitudes of the people of God who are rebelling against God, even though they don't see that they're rebelling against God. Through Malachi, God warns the people against continuing in rebellion. And God calls the people of God, and this is so good, to return to Him. It's our goal over the next two months or so to spend a little time in the book of Malachi to hear the call of God to return to Him. Now, maybe you think to yourself, the call to return to God the King that's not necessary for you. Well, the people of God in the 5th century B.C. didn't think that they needed to return to God either. But as God spoke to them about His love, faithfulness to His word, about marriage, about justice, about giving, about His coming kingdom, God also exposed the darkness in the hearts of the people. And that darkness wasn't something they saw for themselves until God exposed it. But thankfully, God not only exposes the darkness in the hearts of those people, but he promised those people that if they repent and return to him, he would return to them as well, and he would renew a loving relationship with them. Perhaps you don't think you need to return to the Lord. But after looking at this text today, after looking at this text over the, couple of, the next couple of months, I pray that you will find that God is calling us to return to Him, the faithful King of kings. So let's get started. We will find five points in the opening of this book. Jump in. Point number one. Thank God for His Word. Point number one. Thank God for his word. Look at verse 1. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. This book is described as an oracle of God's word. Malachi, by the way, his name means my messenger, is carrying in his heart a burden 
That's another meaning for the word oracle, by the way, a burden. He's carrying the word of God in his heart. God has spoken it to him, and Malachi has to speak it to Israel. They're they're the nation God chose for himself. And, and, And Malachi has to share the message of God with the people of God, whether it's hard to deliver or whether it's hard for the people to hear or not. Why would it be hard? All through Scripture, men who carry with them the word of God have suffered in the word of God. They have been opposed from without by those who hate God, those who want the people of God to be destroyed. They oppose the preacher of the word of God. And they've been opposed from within by people who are the people of God and who like being the people of God in general, but who don't really want anybody telling them how to think or what to do. And we should be grateful that God continued to bring his word even to an often ungrateful people. Even as we we read the titling of the book, right? Let it cause us to give God thanks. God has chosen to give us God's word. You know, the sad thing is, I don't know that you're excited about that anymore. God gave it through prophets like Malachi. He gave it through gospel writers like Matthew. God has done us a kindness by giving us his word. So why is it a kindness? Why? Why should, I, why should you be excited about that? Friends, God does not owe us knowledge of himself. God has every right to ignore us completely. Even more, God has every right to judge us for failing to be perfect like he is perfect. And there's nothing that tells God that he has to even tell us what the rules are for living in such a way that would please him. God is not required by any sort of morality outside of himself to show himself to us. So that God would tell you and me that he exists? That God would show us what dishonors him? That God would show us how to be forgiven? That God would show us how to live as children of God? All of that is grace upon grace upon grace. And let that lead you to give God thanks for his word. Let it lead you to deeply desire to know and understand what's in God's word. Well, the message of Malachi is originally to Israel. Israel, remember, is the name of the covenant people of God. Israel is a people who were descended from Abraham and were chosen by God to carry God's promise. And God swore that no matter what happened, he was not going to let Israel be destroyed completely, but instead he would bring the Messiah, the promised one, the one who would crush the serpent and rescue the people of God. He would bring that one into the world to bless all nations through Israel. And God made a covenant with Israel, agreeing to Israel that he would protect Israel and prosper Israel if Israel as a nation would follow his commands. And God graciously gave the law of God to Israel. Well, now, let's watch as Malachi begins to share this word of the Lord with the people of God. And this will start point number two for us. 
This is important. Settle in your heart the issue of God's love. Point number two, settle in your heart the issue of God's love. Look at the beginning of verse two. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? The opening statement from the lips of God here is glorious to hear. God says, I have loved you. You don't think that's glorious? Think of the alternatives. What if God said to you, I don't love you? Or I hate you? Or I used to love you, but not anymore? Those phrases would be devastating. But here at the very onset of the book of Malachi, God tells the people of God, I have loved you. And the tense of the verb where God says, I have loved you, indicates that the love of God is something that was accomplished or established in the past, but which continues on through the present. This is God telling them, I loved you in the past, and I still love you today. The love of God is completely, totally established. And the word loved is a word that has more important meaning in it than affection. God's not saying, I like you. He's not even saying, I, I, no, I like you like you. I love you, he says. I have loved you. The word here that's used for love is a word that indicates God's choosing Israel, his faithfulness to Israel, his establishment of covenant with Israel. And you can see it used that way in Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 through 9. It says in Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 9, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you, there's the, there's the selection of Israel, has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, see them together? For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because, why did God choose them? But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you up with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. When God says he has loved Israel, he's saying he has chosen her and has committed himself to a relationship with her for her good. He didn't do this, by the way, because Israel was special or because Israel was better or bigger than any other nation. Instead, God did this for his own purpose 
his own glory. And Israel responds to God's declaration of love like the snotty teenager from the opening illustration. Oh yeah? How have you loved me? What spite is in those words in Malachi 1-2? Sure, you say you love us, but we haven't seen it. You don't love us. What's wrong with that question, by the way? How have you loved us? One thing is that the issue of the love of God has been proved time and time and time again. Like the teen sitting on his bed that was given to him by his parents, in the clothes given to him by his parents, eating food provided by his parents, playing with gifts given to him out of his parents' kindness. So Israel acts as though God has done nothing to prove that he loves them. Just because things are not presently going the way Israel wants, they act like God has to do something extra to now actually prove that he loves them. But God has loved Israel and the proof is in the history. How? God chose them as a nation out of all the peoples in the world to be his special possession. God rescued them out of Egypt. God gave them his commandments. God gave them a special covenant so they would know how to act like his people. God brought them home from their captivity in Babylon even though they had rebelled against his commandments. God provided them the opportunity and the resources to rebuild the temple so they could continue to be the people who worship him. God gave them more than enough proof to make it obvious he has loved them. Now, stop. What about you here this morning? If I tell you, Christian, that God has loved you, how would you respond? Does it bring you joy? Do you know it's true? Or like Israel, do you look at God and say, prove it? Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says... But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You want proof of God's love, Christian? We've all sinned against God. Is that true? And God chose not to immediately destroy us for our wrong. What if I told you you would live until your next sin and then God would kill you? How long would you make it? How many of you would already be gone? (laughs) But God chose not to wipe you out at the moment of your first sin. Not only that, God chose to send his only son to die in order to purchase a people for himself. And everyone who has put their trust in the Lord Jesus has seen the love of God proved because all who have trusted in the Lord Jesus have been granted forgiveness of their sins and entrance into God's family. I want to urge you to do this one thing. Settle in your heart the issue of God's love. Right now, right here, right this morning, you have to decide whether you will believe that it is true that God loves you. Has God proved it or not? 
Was sending Jesus to die as a sacrifice for the sins of God's people enough to prove that God is loving? And if that's not enough, what would prove the love of God to you? I mean, the fact that you're drawing breath right now is proof that God is more merciful to us than any of us deserve. God does not owe you oxygen. Let's get that fact straight in our minds right now. Why is it so crucial that you settle in your heart the issue of God's love? Well, we don't want to be like Israel in this story so far, do we? We don't want to arrogantly, obstinately defy God and demand that God reprove love for us over and over and over and over and over again. I once heard a speaker, a preacher, tell a story, and it stuck with me. He told the story of a day when he and his family were at a friend's home for a gathering. And on that day... In that gathering, a small child fell into a swimming pool and was under the water for far too long. And when the adults at the party saw what happened, they pulled this little boy out and his face was blue and he wasn't breathing. And one person called 911 and somebody else began performing rescue breathing on the child. He was limp. But after a horrifying few minutes, a tense few minutes, the child coughed and spat up water and began to breathe. And by the time the paramedics got there, the child was sitting up and everything was fine. And the next day, that man, the speaker, said he was praying and he was thinking about the rescue of the child and he was thanking God for how good and loving God was. Over and over again, he declared, God, you're so good. You're so good. You saved that little boy. You're so good. Then the speaker said it hit him like a shot. Would God not have been good or loving had the child died? And the man admitted he had to return to his knees before the Lord and confess sin because he was measuring God's goodness and God's love based on his personal circumstances. God has already totally, perfectly, completely proved his love for us. And nothing that happens in our own lives can change that fact. If you do not settle in your heart that God's love is already totally true and already totally proven, you will not be able to handle it when tough times come in your life. If you're not settled on the issue of the love of God, every financial difficulty, every job loss, every medical test, every family crisis will put God on trial in your heart. Christians, we cannot live like that. It dishonors God for us to live like that. No, before the time of trial, before the time of testing, we need to already know this one fact beyond any doubt, no matter what the circumstances, God has proved his love and faithfulness to us in Jesus Christ. Amen. And nothing more from God need be done.
even if God allows all of our visible means of support to fall away, even if we end up sick and poor and alone, even if the worst thing we can imagine should happen to us in this life, we should never let that intrude on the simple, totally proven truth that God has loved us. Christians, please get this settled in your heart today. And if you do, it will save you much pain in the future. How do we do it? How do we settle the issue of God's love? Point number three. Remember God's grace shown to you. Remember God's grace shown to you. That's how to start settling the issue of God's love. Two through the beginning of verse three read, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? It's not Esau, Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. Throughout the book of Malachi, we're going to see a pattern of God making a statement, anticipating Israel's questioning of that statement, and then God giving proof of the truth of his statement. Which, by the way, that should tell you God knows you deep down in your heart. God knows you better than you know you. God knows Israel well enough to know exactly how they would object to him, even when they have not yet objected to him. He knows. And in this instance, God anticipates that the people of God would ask, well, how have you loved us? And God offers a very simple answer. God tells the people of Israel, you want to know how I proved I loved you? It's very simple. I chose you and not some other nation. Way back in the book of Genesis, God called a man named Abraham to follow him. And God promised Abraham that through his descendants, all the world would be blessed. And that promise was carried down through Abraham's son, Isaac. And Isaac had two sons, twin boys, Esau and Jacob. Twin boys, same lineage, same family tree. As far as every fact we know is concerned, either one would have been just fine for God to choose to carry the promise. There's nothing about one that's better than the other one. Normally, the elder of the two sons would be the one to carry any promise or special blessing. Now, as the third child in my family, I think that seems incorrect, but what do I do? <laughs> but God chose that he would build his special nation, carry the blessing through Jacob the younger instead of through his older brother Esau. That's normal stuff. You guys know that story really well, right? And Paul writes about this, by the way, in Romans chapter 9. Listen to 10 through 16. Romans 9, 10 through 16. Not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, Paul's pointing out, just one, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. 
Just in case you feel funny about that, then Paul says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. God chose for God's own reasons to build his nation through Jacob. So God loved, chose Jacob. In contrast, though Esau was the firstborn son of Isaac, God did not choose Esau. God elected Jacob to carry the promise. God allowed Esau to be exactly what Esau wanted to be. And eventually, this led to the descendants of Esau becoming a nation who were haters of God and hated enemies of God. So how did God prove his love for the nation of Israel? He reminds them, I could have chosen another nation to be my treasured possession, and I would have been perfectly right to do so. I, I even could have chosen a nation founded on the founder of your nation's twin brother. But God chose Israel to be his people. Now, Christians, this is exactly how you and I come to the knowledge of God's love for us. Please understand, God did not have to save us. We brought nothing to the table to make ourselves lovable to God. If you're saved, you know what you brought to the table? Sin. Don't you dare, but, by the way, say, oh, I brought something good to the table. I brought my faith. You going to take credit for that? You're going to tell God, I'm smarter than the people who, didn't, who you didn't save, God. That's why you saved me. I'm more submissive to you than other people. That's why you saved me. I deserve a little bit of credit. Be careful. The Bible reminds us time after time, in verse after verse, that our hearts were dark and rebellious, dead to God and hopeless, but God, for God's own purposes and for God's own glory, chose to reach down out of heaven and make our dead hearts alive. And he sent Jesus, his very own son, to die on a cruel cross and bear his wrath that we deserve God didn't choose to do this for us because he had to. He didn't choose to do this because we deserved it or earned it in any way. No, God simply chose to save our souls out of God's own grace, which is why Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. We may not boast in anything except this. God's grace is totally amazing. That's why John Newton wrote those glorious words. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. There are churches that want to take the word wretch out of that verse. Did you know that? There are hymnals that have been printed that say, that saved a soul like me. Oh my, my, are you missing the point. 
John Newton knew that God's love for him was totally and completely God's doing. And if God has proved his love for you by saving your soul, then God's love is a totally done deal, folks. Remember God's grace shown to you. Have you trusted in Jesus, by the way? Has God saved your soul? Has God changed you from being someone who deserves his wrath to being his child who will receive heaven in your future? If so, you've got to remember what God has done for you and let that help you keep set in your mind, regardless of what your circumstances are, that God once and for all proved his love for you at the cross. But you all know that the cross proves more than the love of God, don't you? Point number four, this is a long one. I like to refer to this as an Eric Yeager length point. <laughs> Let God's faithfulness to you assure you of his faithfulness to judge. Let God's faithful grace to you assure you of his faithfulness to judge. Verses 2 through 4 again. Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I've hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says we're shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Come back with me to the drama between Jacob and Esau for a moment. Jacob and Esau were the fathers of two nations that went their separate ways. Jacob's descendants became known as the nation of Israel, God's chosen people. The descendants of Esau became known as the Edomites. And throughout their history, the Israelites and the Edomites did not make good neighbors. This conflict was most apparent back when the people of Judah were captured by the Babylonians and Jerusalem was burned in the year 586 B.C. According to the book of Obadiah, verses 11 through 14, the Edomites, they partied, they rejoiced over the destruction of Judah. They, they laughed, man. They looted the city of Jerusalem when the Babylonians left. And the, and the, and the Edomites, they even caught fleeing people from Judah, and they handed them over to the Babylonians. They might have even tried to sell some as slaves. They were evil. The Edomites were enemies to Israel, and God made a promise that he would destroy them as a nation. So in the book of Obadiah, God promised the destruction of Edom. Now, during the days of Malachi, when this book was written in the 430s-ish, God has already carried out that plan. God has already destroyed Edom as a nation. Somewhere in the late part of the 6th century, so sometime later than the 550s BC, the people of Edom were overrun and forced out of their land and they would never get it back. So here in the 5th century BC, God points out to Israel, hey guys, you know what? I destroyed Edom just like I said. And in doing so, I'm proving to you, Israel, I am faithful. God has been faithful to love Israel, to protect Israel, to restore people of Israel back to their land. And in just the same way, God has been faithful to carry out his righteous judgment against the Edomites. 
And we should find hope and joy in the love and the grace of God. We know that, right? We established that last point. Find hope, find joy, find life in the love and the grace and the faithfulness of God. You do, don't you? Find hope and joy in the grace and the faithfulness of God. But the same love and the same grace of God has to remind us of God's justice. How many of you speak to me here? How many of you are saved? Yes. Yes. If you're saved, know that God saved you from something. You have, if you're saved, you're saved from something, right? If you save money, you save it from being spent. If you save time, you save it from being wasted. If you save a, dr- a person drowning in the sea, you save them from death, right? God saved you from something. His very own justice. God saved you from himself, for himself, to himself, by himself. It could go on and on. Just as God will be faithful to keep those who have been forgiven by grace through faith in Jesus, God will also, must also be faithful to destroy those who do not believe in him. How many of you know the verse John 3, 16? Popular, right? Listen to it with the verses that follow added in their context. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Amen? Amen. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. Amen? Amen? Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Amen? But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Amen. Amen. Love the mercy of God, yes. But remember that God's faithfulness to save those who trust in Jesus also proves that he will be faithful to judge those who do not trust in Jesus. So God has shown and proved his love. He did so by choosing and saving a people for himself. He has demonstrated his justice in judging the Edomites. Now what? Point five, last point. Let God's kindness and justice call you to return to him in awe. Let God's kindness and justice call you to return to him in awe. Verse 5 says, Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. God tells Israel, God tells Israel, you will see my greatness beyond the borders of Israel. You've seen, you've seen already, Israel, that God has the power to bring down the nation of Edom even when they don't live inside the borders of the promised land. That's important, especially to the people of that era. It's a very important thought. God is not bound 
by the borders of physical Israel. Remember back then the people thought their deities were bound by the borders of the countries they lived in. Not the God of the Bible. Even more, the people of God, though, are also going to learn not just that God could knock down Edom, but they're going to learn with the coming of Jesus. They're going to learn with the spreading of the gospel all over the globe that the people of God are going to be a people from all nations. The saving power of God is not merely for people that have Israelite blood in their veins. The family of God is going to be made up of people who are forgiven because of the shed blood of Jesus over their souls. The one God promised and brought through Israel to be the Savior of the world, God promised Jesus would come through Israel and he brought him in. That one is going to show us that the glory of God is going to be proclaimed well beyond the borders of Israel. And here we see that God is ultimately going to prove both things. He's going to prove both his love and his justice on a global scale. So what do we do, Christians, when we see the love of God on one side and the justice of God contrasted, let's say. Although they're not opposites, they are together. What do we do when we see types or symbols of the saved and the damned? What are we supposed to think when we remember both that God has proved his love for all who come to Jesus for forgiveness and in the same moment, God has proved he will judge all who reject him. Let me suggest to you an answer. Come to God in awe. If you know Jesus, come in awe, in worship, in reverence, remembering his kindness, his justice. Be thankful to Jesus. Love Jesus. Ask Jesus to forgive you forever, even for one single moment, doubting that he loves you. Trust him. Marvel at him. He is God, not just in Israel, but over the entire universe and well beyond. And if you don't yet know this God I'm talking about, if you're playing games with him, if you're doubting him, if you think you can run from him, be afraid. Because he will judge you. He will. He will destroy those who do not come to him through faith in Christ, who do not believe in Jesus Christ. God will be just. God will do justice. And he will judge your sin rightly. But listen to me. You can have hope. One hope. There's one way. Your only hope is to come to him in awe. Confess your sin. Seek forgiveness from God through the finished work of Jesus Christ. He promises he will forgive all who come to him in faith. So come to God and find his mercy before it's too late. Let's pray together. Lord, your word is good. Your word is good. And your love endures. Your justice is good. Your forgiveness is glorious. 
We are sinners in need of grace. We are forgiven sinners, all who have Jesus. Yet we need to submit to you. We need to remember your love. We need to not let ourselves doubt, but fully accept everything you've said you are in your word. Settle us in your love and help us love you. That's our prayer in Jesus Christ's holy name. Amen.